Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Tuesday, December 19th. With us now, the Dutch sociologist and geographer Hein de Haas, who has studied immigration for three decades and tries to bust myths that he sees as coming from both the political left and political right. He is a professor of sociology at the University of Amsterdam and a founding member of the International Migration Institute at the University of Oxford. And he has a new book called How Migration Really Works, The Facts About the Most Divisive Issue in Politics. With Republicans through Donald Trump channeling Hitler and calling immigrants vermin and saying they're poisoning the blood of Americans, and with Democrats like Mayor Adams and President Biden conflicted on how to manage the recent asylum seeker surge into New York and the U.S., and de Haas's own country of the Netherlands having just given an election victory to anti-immigration, anti-asylum, and anti-Islam populist Heert Wilders, Let's see what Hein de Haas has to say about, as his book title puts it, how migration really works. This is in 22 chapters, and each chapter busts one myth as he sees it. Professor de Haas, welcome to WNYC. Hello from New York. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. You write, first of all, that the world is not experiencing an unusual surge in migration right now, even though it may feel like that. So we'll take this as myth number one that the pace has been pretty constant since the end of World War II. So if I've got that right, could you start with a big picture in those terms? Yeah, well, indeed, start with the big picture. So if you look at a global level, uh, about 3% of the total world population is a migrant, an international migrant. So that's a person who is currently living in another country than his or her country of birth. And that percentage has remained remarkable stable over the last 50 years. And it was probably higher a century ago. Because on the local level, things may seem very different. So we see surges of migration on local level. But if you zoom out, there is actually no reason for the kind of panic we're often feeling right now. Of course, it's reason for concern. But this idea that global migration is totally running out of hand is actually not backed up by fact. The same percentage of people move from country to country now as on average since the end of World War II. Is that sort of the stat? Yeah, and if you look at the United States, for instance, roughly 15% of U.S. population is an immigrant, so has been born abroad, and the percentage is actually similar a century ago. Of course, we talk about more people, more migrants, but we also talk about a bigger population. So relatively speaking, there's not a big change. Although, of course, you cannot uh, deny that over the last 10 to 20 years, we've seen an increase in migration to many Western countries, including the United States. But it is not so much caused by misery, poverty, inequality, or climate change in poor countries. It's rather caused by increasing labor shortages and a lack of immigration policies that can channel those kind of labor migrants, particularly when we talk about lower-skilled migrants. And that is a big explanation why we see a surge in illegal border crossings, for instance. So these are real problems. But it doesn't so much reflect a sort of wave of people coming driven by poverty and desperation it rather has to do with our economy and the failure of immigration systems to align themselves in a way with with uh, labor demand and i think that's the biggest sort of elephant in the room of the debate because there's a lot of 
willingness to accept the fact that higher skilled migrants will come, people with, with, with university degrees. But we all know that migrants do all sorts of useful jobs that are more manual jobs in the service sector and agriculture. And there we see, for instance, in the United States, a huge, huge number of vacancies, topping an unprecedented 10 million this year, record low unemployment. And it's part of the story. There's so much to follow up on uh, in that answer you gave, including various assertions that people might find surprising. So let me pick one or two, because you do acknowledge a change in modern times of who is moving where from relatively poor countries in the global south and east to relatively wealthy countries in the north and in the west. Uh, And yet you just said this is not so much about people moving to escape poverty. Talk about that one. Well, the surprising fact is that migration uh, is highest in middle-income countries, as we call it. Well, Mexico is a typical example. If we move to Europe, you look at a country like Turkey, for instance, or in Asia, the Philippines. These are not the poorest countries of the world. And that's not a coincidence because, first of all, migration is expensive. Poor countries have actually much lower immigration. And if you look within countries, it's typically, let's say, the lower middle classes, the middle classes that migrate because migration requires resources, money, and also degrees often allow you to migrate and gives you the kind of mindset and ambition to move. So when poor countries get richer, uh, we found in research that more people start moving instead of less. And that is uh, totally counterintuitive, but that's what we find in uh, when we look at the data, actually. How do and you th- th- yeah? go, go ahead. You can finish the thought. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and the other thing to say is that even if people want to migrate, most people wouldn't migrate if there were no opportunities. So we see a clear correlation between, I just mentioned the fact that we right now see all across the West, particularly after COVID, a huge shortage of all sorts of manual jobs, and that is definitely attracting migrants. So most migrants wouldn't do all those investments because migration is an investment, particularly over large distances, if there were no opportunities. I'm here, of course, not talking about refugees, but about the bulk of migrants, and that is people who come to work. You see no major political divides between left and right, between political parties. You say the divisions are within the parties. Now, that's yes. hard for me to believe in terms of the United States right now as Congress remains stuck on specific migration restrictions that the Republicans are insisting on and President Biden, a Democrat, opposes and Trump saying he would be a dictator on day one to build that wall. But how do you see it? Well, if you look, we've measured it, actually. We measured 6,500 policy migration policy measures that have been taken off the last decades all across the West. And then we, including the United States, and then we compared whether you know, left-leaning governments or right-leaning governments uh, are more restrictive or more liberal in terms of immigration policy, and we don't find, find a significant difference. What we see is a huge gap between what politicians say and do, or actually rather not do. And I can give one example. Uh, the, most of the political showmanship is about border controls. That's where you really see that politicians talk very tough, Uh, announce things like building walls. We should also not forget that, for instance, President Obama was nicknamed the deporter-in-chief by many of his critics on that. So it is not true that democratic politicians have necessarily been softer in terms of border enforcement. But where the real gap exists, and the more you move in a way to the right, you see that the rhetoric gets tougher. But in terms of what's actually happening in reality, 
I can give two examples. Legal admissions, temporary migrant admissions in the US reach an all-time high under President Trump. That's not what you would think if you listen to the rhetorics. Second thing is the huge gap between politicians vowing to crack down on, on illegal migration, but the extraordinarily low rates of labor enforcement. In the US, for instance, on a yearly basis, only 10 to 15, without any zeros added, employers gets prosecuted for uh, employing undocumented migrants. That's roughly the same chance as getting hit by lightning. And that shows to me, it's almost like a smoking gun piece of evidence that behind all the tough talk, politicians are not really willing to crack down on this because it is convenient, it's economically convenient. What it means is that both within, let's say, Republican circles or Democratic circles, but you see the same in Europe between left and right, that the left has traditionally been divided on immigration as well because traditionally trade unions, labor unions were actually opposed. They saw immigration as something that could divide the workforce and provide cheap labor for employers. Well, what we see within right-leaning governments is that the business, lob business lobbies are extraordinarily strong and it partly explains why they, behind the tough rhetoric, uh, right-leaning politicians in practice are much less tough than you would think when you listen to the rhetorics. And this is why we actually didn't find any significant difference between left and right in terms of immigration policies, also to our surprise. But this is actually the explanation. More difference in rhetoric than actual policies, uh, though I'm sure a lot of people in the United States will say when you have one party running on, for example, a Muslim ban uh, and calling immigrants vermin and that they're um, poisoning our blood and that they're going to build a wall. Uh, you're saying that maybe they get into office and then they can't actually do those things. But boy, does it sound like there are different positions in the two parties here. Here's one from your book that you say is a myth that will go against what people on the left perceive. You say climate change will not lead to mass migration. Really? Yeah, I've done research on this, and there's actually more and more evidence on this. Um, there are there's many reasons to believe that climate change leads to more than to less migration, and the basic reasoning is the following. First of all, there's a lot of research on the effect of natural disasters like droughts and floods uh, on, the, on movement of people, and what we generally see is these things happen. First of all, most people try to stay as much as they can. If people move away, they tend to go on very short distances and try to go back. But if they have to relocate, the vast majority of people try to stay within their regions, within their towns, and certainly within the countries. But the most important reason is that people who are most vulnerable to climate change, things, for instance, about peasants in uh, poor countries, are those who will be most severely hit, for instance, by the increasing incidence of droughts, are those people who will be impoverished by those events. It actually means they wouldn't have the means to go away, which means that the biggest victims of climate change, because I just want to emphasize that climate change is one of the most serious issues facing humanity over the coming decades. But our real concern should go out to those people who cannot move away in the first place, who, who will get stuck. cannot move away, yeah. Yeah, Although who will if, get if, stuck in those places. If desertification is expanding into parts of the world, in parts of the world, uh, leading to famine or wars over resources based on global heating, 
why wouldn't migration, mass migration, be a result? First of all, because migration requires a lot of resources, but also the causal links are not as simple. I've done three years of research in Morocco in dry areas. And what is happening partly is that, for instance, governments, uh, if I think about big business, big agriculture, hotels, towns, they're pumping a lot of water away, which means that it's not just the climate. If we see environmental crisis in such areas, it's a whole set of other factors that may affect whether people move or don't move. And the, the, yeah, the, the bitter irony almost is that the biggest victims of those things are not people who will end up at the border of wealthy nations. It doesn't diminish the problem, but simply to link, and there's a lot of evidence on this, to link uh, climate change to the specter of mass migration is simply not backed up by any evidence. I've worked together with climate scientists. There is a lot of research on this right now that basically says our real concern, concern should go out to people who are not able to move and to protect those people and to make sure that they will be resilient to those changes. But to link that to the specter of mass migration is simply not making any sense if we look at the evidence. There's Nerve broad consensus in Brooklyn, now in the, in the research community. Nerve in Brooklyn. You're on WNYC with Professor Hein de Haas from the University of Amsterdam. Hello, Nerve. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for taking my call. And Professor de Haas, thank you so much for your research. I really appreciate it. Um, I've been really curious, uh, like just like listening to the conversation, I'm wondering, you know, like in terms, I'm 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 an immigrant myself. I moved from the Philippines uh, here in the U.S. And I was wondering, like, you know, like migration and immigration are so uneven, right? In terms of um, <clears throat> places in the world where people go and move. And I'm wondering, like, uh, in in your research, what are the recent trends or patterns that you've observed in the last few years in terms of where do people move? from and their destination and also where are just like strong anti-immigrant anti-migrant policies are really kind of um taking a stronghold um you know are, have there been kind of changes over time that you've noticed in terms of climate change for instance um or wars and and other forms of political violence um are those changes geographically kind of changing or shifting over time or are you seeing kind of like a really almost like permanent kind of um, uh, geographies of migration flows and also strong anti-immigrant, anti-migrant policies in different particular parts of the regions of the world. Um, yeah, I'm curious to hear uh, your thoughts about this in relation to capital flows and labor necessities and migration. Thank you so much for your call. And wow, those are big questions. Uh, you could write yeah. whole books on those questions. So give as brief an answer as you can while still doing Nerve's question justice. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. I think it's, it's pointing to something really important what's happening right in the world. What is actually happening is that we see the rise of new migration, immigration countries in the world. Like Mexico is starting to become a destination for Central American migrants. Turkey is becoming a destination for migrants in the Middle East. We see the rise of sort of new economic powers that attract more and more migrants. The Gulf region has been already for a long time a new destination. So it is no longer just Europe and North America. We see a growing number of countries attracting migrants. Unfortunately, what we also see in those countries is growing xenophobia. I mean, you were just talking about the rhetorics. There you're definitely right that the rhetorics are getting tougher and tougher. And we see this in 
more and more non-European, non-North American countries, those same rhetorics start to take hold, like in Turkey, like in, uh, like in Mexico. And that, I think, is reason for concern. So what I was just pointing out that, you know, the policy, there's a huge gap. There's a kind of political hypocrisy about, you know, what politicians say and what they do. But the rhetoric is becoming so inflammatory that it may really be very harmful for society and the peaceful living together of, yeah. of groups. So this, this narrative is indeed spreading to more and more countries also outside of the West. And I think that is a real reason for concern. But it's not really driven by a sort of massive increase of refugees because that's not really what we see. It is much more driven by politics and, and politicians using those narratives to scapegoat migrants and to make people afraid of mass immigrations. And I think that is the real danger. It's rhetoric. It's not innocent. The only thing I was stressing, it's not really backed up by any tougher measures necessarily. I was just mentioning the low yes. labor enforcement, the fact that more and more legal migrants are being let in. But it could reach a point that it really gets dangerous. And that's also why I wrote the book, because I'm really concerned about this polarization in the migration debate and the total detachment of the debate from any reality. And I think people need to know and that uh, what politicians tell you is not really what's going on. Frank in Morristown, you're on WNYC with Hein de Haas, author now of How Migration Really Works. Frank, hello. Hello. I'm uh, just trying to find out if the researcher looked into the, <clears throat> the phenomenon that is coming on where uh, these new immigrants, and I'm not picking on any one particular group, trying to change the laws of the their new country. For instance, uh, the Islamics will want to establish Sharia law. Um, the Jews like to live in enclaves uh, with their own laws. Um, I don't know if you, if you had research touched on any of those. I, I, I think those are, forgive me, anti-Jewish and anti-Islam tropes. But do you have anything on on that that's relevant, Professor? Well, there's not evidence of that having happened at any point in time. What we often see is that new groups are often seen as fundamentally different and not being able to fit in. It's really interesting to look at the history of U.S. immigration. That you now, if you go back a century ago, Italians were seen as not being able to fit into the American mainstream, and Catholic migrants more in general. We're seeing as more loyal to the Pope in Rome than to the American nation. Germans, even a bit longer ago, were also seen as a group that couldn't fit into the uh, American nation and Jewish immigrants. So we see a whole history where we see those, yeah, in a way, tropes being repeated by politicians. But if you look one or two generations further down the line, those fears have completely disappeared. And it shows also that a lot of this is, again, about inflammatory rhetoric than rather about any reality. What we know from research is that migrants want to fit in as soon as they can, the large majority, and they may concentrate in enclaves for a while. I also describe it in my book, and that's often to make it together in a way to help each other, but as soon as people are successful, they tend to move out of such places. And that is part of the, let's call it the American dream that most migrants want to have. And that is a general pattern also when we look in Europe. So these fears of migrants changing the nation, have been very common, but always have evaporated one or two generations down the line when migrants have become part of the nation. Hein de Haas, professor of sociology at the University of Amsterdam and founding member of the International Migration Institute 
at the University of Oxford, is now the author of How Migration Really Works, The Facts About the Most Divisive Issue in Politics. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.